0: Just as we stand, can you pray together? Lord Christ, we have sung the truth just now. You are the one our hearts hunger for. You are the one through whom we receive healing and grace. You are the one for whom we have been. you are the one who is our glory. We come now as your children asking that you would be gracious yet again to us. Would you pour out your spirit upon us? Would you gift us with eyes to see and ears to hear? Hearts to embrace all that you are that we may be transformed into your image for the glory of your name. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We come once again to the story of the wedding at Cana. You might want to open up your Bibles in John chapter 2. We're told by John that this is the first of the seven signs that he will record in his gospel. And it seems in the mind of the church, in the history of the church, uh, it is the foremost of those seven signs. Uh, It is the one sign that we read Each year at this time of year, every third Sunday of Epiphany time, we read this story. Just like every year at Epiphany, we read the story of the Magi. And every year on the second Sunday, we read about the baptism of Jesus. These three stories, every single year, are brought to the attention of the church. Now, I don't know about you, but as a preacher, preaching now for 30 years, uh, on these texts, I have a mixed reaction when I come to this story. The child in me says, like children do, again, again, read it again, because there's something delightful in this story something profoundly delightful. It's both human and divinely delightful. And yet the cynical adult in me says, is there nothing new under the sun? Can we not have something else to reflect on? Why this story? And I have to say that every year as I come to this text to prepare this sermon, the child always wins out. There is something new in these old stories that we hear again and again and again. And so we're going to hear it. John chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to walk our way through it. John says <clears throat> that on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Third day. It makes us go back to say that the last scene we have was Jesus uh, at the River Jordan. In fact, the first chapter of John is all at the River Jordan in Judea, all centered on the ministry of John the Baptist. And Jesus, having himself been baptized, gathers now his beginnings of his disciples, uh, one being Nathaniel, who is from Cana in Galilee, by the way. And then he decides to return to Galilee, a three-day journey. They come to Cana, which is about a small Jewish town, about nine miles north of Nazareth, the place where Jesus himself was raised. Uh, a local town. He would know it well. And he comes, apparently, for into a wedding. Now, you've got to know something about Jewish weddings. I don't know if you've ever been to one. I haven't, but again, I've been hearing about these things all my life. Jewish weddings, especially in small towns, were an epic event. It was a huge public social celebration. Absolutely huge. But more than that, it was a tremendously profound religious ceremony. Because every Jewish wedding mirrored and symbolized the covenant God had made with his people. Every time a man and a woman came together to be covenanted, It reminded everybody that the creator himself had bound himself to Israel. And they were profoundly grateful. But not only did it look back to the covenant God made with Israel, it looked ahead to the final consummation of that covenant. Always this backward-looking and forward-looking kind of way. Because Israel knew that the covenant God had made with Abraham was simply the down payment of something far greater. Something that they could not even begin to understand that God would one day come and marry his people fully, intimately, ultimately. We saw that from our Old Testament text today Isaiah 62. That was the promise. Right? God says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Right? That's the promise, that God himself would come and in some way ultimately marry his people within his creation. It boggles the mind. Anyways... There's the wedding. And Jesus seems to have come back to Cana for this event because John says the mother of Jesus was there and that Jesus also was invited along with his disciples. Suggests that uh, this was a family wedding. Uh, Not anybody nine miles away would make the trek to anybody else's wedding or at least of a very close family friend. This is an intimate gathering. And Jesus and his mother are there. That's the scene, the setting. And then, of course, disaster strikes. I love this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's it. They have no wine. Mary, it seems... Uh, is taking responsibility for this disaster. It's a social disaster, right? An embarrassing thing for the family to have run out of wine. So many folks have come to this celebration. And it seems that she comes feeling responsibility for this faux pas and lays it directly in the lap of her son. They have no wine. <laughs> I love the scene. How can you not love the seed? And then, of course, Jesus rebuffs her. Right? He goes on, John says, woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> right. And to our Western ears, that sounds really bad. Woman. I don't know about you, but I would have been whipped if I called my mom <laughs> woman, right? We're not even mother dearest. I mean, it's just woman. And we go, wow, that's chauvinistic, isn't it? I mean, it's just, there's a gratingness to this. And you've got to remember, though, uh, in John's way of writing, the, there's only two scenes that Mary comes into uh, in his gospel, this and at the foot of the cross, in both of those scenes, Jesus addresses her as woman. Right? The second scene, he gives her into the care of his beloved disciple. There's a tenderness to this that we miss. So do not judge because we don't understand. Woman. But there is a rebuke. What's this got to do with me? <laughs> Literally, the Greek is what to you and what to me? He says, Mary, it's nothing to do with you. Why are you putting it on me? Right? I refuse to deal with this. This is not why I'm here. And he gives the explanation, my hour has not yet come. My hour. The hour that is the frame for John's gospel the hour that is yet to come because it is the fulfillment of his purpose, the utter fulfillment of why he was born, the hour which will come to its climax on the cross itself. The hour has come. John will write. But there's Jesus saying, not here, not this, not yet. And Mary ignores him, right? Turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And then exits stage left. I mean, you got to love the story. This is a Jewish mama with her son who is feeling responsible and says, I don't know what you will do, but if he says to do something, you do it. You do it. And Jesus, who first refused then comes around and actually does it. John says, there were now six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of big honkin' jars. These were used to purify the guests who would come. They were used to purify the utensils used in the feast. And they symbolize, of course, the fact that all of us and everything around us need purification, needs to be cleansed because we are not worthy to come to this feast as we are. And it seems that not only had the wine ran out, but the water had as well. They had used a lot of it. So Jesus tells the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them too the brim and then comes the miracle itself understated as it is he says you now take some of this water to the master of the feast and they do the master of the feast would be the one right after the bridegroom who would suffer most shame because of the faux pas. Right? He's the guy that is overseeing this, this gig. And they run out wide. He, not Mary, should have been saying, well, what are we going to do about the wine? Didn't. They take the water to this one. He tastes it. And calls the bridegroom. And praises him. He calls him. For this very unexpected. Reversal. Of protocol. He says everyone. Everyone else. (laughs) Serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely. And they have. Then the poor one. But you. There's the gospel. It's always in but you. But you have kept the good line until now. It's a great story. In all of its simplicity, in all of its complexity, in all of its wonder. So how we understand it? It's always good to begin where John begins because he tells us how we are to understand it. He goes on to say, this, the first of his signs. Again, the first chronologically of seven, but perhaps first because it's foremost of these signs. The one that seems to epitomize what all the rest of them are all about. These are miracles, but they are miracles described by John as signs, events, actions that point to something else, something greater, right? And that something greater is this, the first of the signs which he did at Cana and manifested his glory. That, says John, is what this miracle did, It manifested Jesus's glory, which means in John's parlance, it manifested his connection, his intimate connection with the very being and activity of God. Because glory is the essence of the divine. That's what it is. And when Jesus manifested his glory, he manifested his connection with the divine. That's what's happening in this piece. And John has already told us in his prologue that we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, yeah, and it started here. It started with this miracle, with this steward praising this bridegroom for water that had been turned to the finest of wines. Glory. John goes on, they beheld his glory and believed in him, believed in him. Not just things about him, but in him. Believe that he was the one who was to come. He was the one through whom the creator himself, by whom the creator himself, and now the discovering as whom the Creator Himself would fulfill his promises to his. <coughs> Again, remember the promise. He was the bride group, the divine bride group, coming to rejoice over his. this sign manifested that glory and they saw they believed in him so it raises the question of course have we seen it have you and I beheld his Has his glory been manifested to us in such a way that we have come to know that he (coughs) is the one? That's the question. I trust that you have. I trust that you have answered that question by the grace of God, that that knowledge has broken into your understanding your comprehension, your seeing. And if it hasn't, I pray that it might happen today. Why not? Pray that God would open your eyes to behold him in his glory, that you might be drawn into it. For seeing is believing. Believing is seeing. If you have seen. Another question. Are you continuing to see? Are you continuing to behold him as he manifests his glory? Even through this story, year after year, month after month, day after day. (coughs) There is a reason why this story comes up over and over and over again. Because this is one of the daily tasks of the church, is to see him and to know him as the one. Over and over and over again. Do we hear him even now speaking to us through this story? Because that's what he wants to do. The thing that got to me as I was preparing this uh, is what he wants us to hear. John doesn't tell us that, uh, but Isaiah does. I want to flip back to Isaiah 62. This is a glorious promise. God speaks to a people in exile, and he speaks as the bridegroom the divine bridegroom who will come and fulfill his promises for his bride in his creation. And notice how 62 starts, this God speaking as the bridegroom to his people, saying, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. The promise of God is He will break his silence to his people. The promise of God is, when he breaks that silence, he will continue to speak to his people. He will speak over and over and over again. This is how he speaks something new into existence. The word of God is a powerful word. It performs what it says. Remember the beginning of creation, God said, let there be light, and guess what? There was light. Same in the new creation, when God speaks, he speaks something into being, he speaks something into existence. God's word is performative, it does what it says. And what does it say? For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Do you hear what he's saying? When I break my silence, I will break it forever. I will continue to speak and I'll go over and over and say things over and over until your righteousness goes forth as brightness. Until his people become those who he created them to be, those who reflect his glory because they share his character. We are the new thing to be spoken into existence by the bridegroom who has come. You hear that? That's the wondrous thing. So what is this one saying to us that allows that to be true? The wondrous thing about Isaiah 62 is that we are called by a new name. That's the new thing. We're called by a new name. Look at verse 4. It says, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. This is the people in exile. They had been. They were forsaken. They are. And their land is desolate because it has been ravaged. Right? You will no longer be termed forsaken. Your land shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called. My delight is in her. And your land, married. What God speaks to his people over and over and over again is my delight is in you. And he will say that over and over and over again until we believe it. Until our righteousness shines forth. Isn't that amazing? When we see and hear the bridegroom speak, we become what he says. That's the way it works. See, God does not simply speak truth to us. He speaks us into truth. When he tells us, my delight is in you. And as we believe it, we become it. In fact, as well as in promise. That's the glory of the gospel. To hear the bridegroom speak truth to us. To speak us into Your new name is my delight is in you. To believe the bridegroom is to believe what he says, to know it in our gut. And when we do, become those who are worthy of the name for the glory of his let us pray just respond as you are led